Hello and welcome to Mountain Talk on WMMT. I'm your host, Sydney Bowles. Today, we're exploring a different side of our region's black lung epidemic. We bring you an hour of interviews with women who lost their spouses to black lung disease. We also talk with Evan Smith, an attorney with Apple Red Legal Aid, about the federal black lung benefit system and how a program that was designed to help minors and their families became mired in bureaucracy. How'd you meet your husband? Um, right down here at the little grocery store that used to be at the foot of the hill. Uh, he was there and I was there and we just started talking and he wanted, asked if I wanted to go to the movies and I said sure. So like a week later we went to the movies. We got married like three months later. He liked to hunt and fish. He loved Cincinnati Red in UK. He was quiet. He was tall and skinny. He loved being a father and a grandfather better than anything. He, he was just that person. Uh, you have that one person in your life that you love with your whole heart, and he was mine. The black lung benefits process is highly adversarial. You know, it's, um, it's much more like, um, you know, workers' comp law, where you really have specialized attorneys on both sides, specialized doctors on both sides, who really um, know this system and know how to work within it. Um, for people who just file a claim and kind of think they can um, figure out the system on their own, you know, sadly, they're, they're really at a disadvantage. The first thing that I was hoping we could do is talk about the structure of, navigate, of the federal mm-hmm. black lung thing. Yeah, so if yeah, someone yeah. wants to file a claim, yeah. how does it start from the first piece of paperwork yeah. through to the Sixth Circuit? Mm-hmm. So the federal black lung process is very bureaucratic and involves all these steps. Most of the steps all take place within the U.S. Department of Labor. And even within the Department of Labor, there's three big steps. So people file their claims and get an initial decision from what are called the district director's offices here in Kentucky. Most of those are handled in Pikeville. Then if either side, either the you know, the coal miner, the widow, or on the other end, the coal company or the insurance company, if they're unhappy with that decision, then they can ask for a judge to review it. And so then that's handled by the Department of Labor's Office of Administrative Law Judges. And that's where things become more formal. That, that step usually takes a couple years, while the, while the district director only takes about a year usually. Um, and then the, the end result of that is you get a decision from one of these ALJs and that's usually going to be the um, gonna set the tone for what's going to happen at the end of the case. There is an opportunity for someone to do another appeal within the Department of Labor to something called the Benefits Review Board. And then the Benefits Review Board's decision is the last word from the Department of Labor. But you can still go all the way up further and get review from um, a member of the federal judiciary and you go directly to the U.S. Court of Appeals that handles the state where the coal miner last worked. So for Kentucky coal miners, that takes you to the Sixth Circuit, which is based out of Cincinnati, Ohio. So how common is it for a case to go all the way to the Sixth Circuit? It's uncommon for one to go to the Sixth Circuit. Um, 
mean, in the average year, there's probably about uh, 50 black lung cases that end up before one of the courts of appeals around the country. Um, and again, I, I don't know if you're out, let me you kind of look this up. I, you got to that website pretty pretty fast. It's like you've been there before. <laughs> yeah, so so each year there's about 7,000 black lung claims filed at that first step. Then of those, about 1,000 are going to go up to the Office of Administrative Law Judges, about 500 to the Benefits Review Board, and only about 50. So really just a sliver of the total amount of claims filed are going to end up in one of the courts of appeals. And would it usually be something unique or, or specific or challenging about that case? Or like what kinds of cases tend to take that um, long and go that, go that far? It's usually when there's um, a question of law that's involved and especially a legal question that, um, that coal industry lawyers see coming up in case after case after case. Uh, because the time and expense of, of taking a case to the Court of Appeals is much more than what you would have for a regular claim. And so, um, you know, for them to justify that to, you know, the coal company or their insurance company, there needs to be a reason that they think it's worth it. I met him in 1975, and he was the love of my life. He was already in the coal mines of working. So we dated two years, couple months. And then we got married and started another family. He was happy-go-lucky. When I'd go by him, he'd wink at me all the time. Always tell me how good he loved me and how happy he was to have me. He made you feel special. He made me feel special. If I put a dress on, he'd go, you're so pretty. And just, he's just a good husband. He loved to get out and play with the children. He was just a bundle of joy to me, a hard worker, a good worker. He had two children, a three-year-old son when I met him and a nine-year-old boy, and I had a little boy that was three. We had a child a year later, so I stayed at home, and I was a stay-at-home mom, and he worked, and we vacationed. We just did wonderful things together like any normal couple. Did you notice that he was getting sick when he was still working? Oh, it was in later years, so maybe... I say I always say the last five years of their marriage, he started going downhill, but probably the last three years. So, well, he didn't want to get out and do the normal stuff. Like, uh, we had a teenage daughter at the time, and we had a big basketball go set up outside. They'd play basketball. Uh, just we had horses. He didn't ride, but she didn't ride that much. But he'd get out and help him do that. You know, work with the horse a little bit. But he just started going. He didn't want to do things. You can see we have a big yard. We had a riding lawnmower. He would mow one yard on that riding lawnmower. He'd wait a couple of days. He'd mow another one. So time he got done, it's time to start over again because the grass would grow on us. He tried to show me how to use the weed eater and help him, and I talked so much. I remember using that weed eater, and I turned to speak to him, and, you know, I whacked his leg. He said, okay, you don't have to do this no more. We'll figure it out. It even got to the point, you know, we had to raise the head of her bed and put bricks under it, like little bricks from outside. I put two on each side under the bedpost so it would get him, raise his head up. He worked underground to 93, but the last two years of his life, of working, I mean, he drove his own truck. You know, he had to haul coal and take it places. You have to climb up, you have to tarp him, and, you know, all that stuff, so. Yeah. 
And he worked on them. He worked on them on the weekend. He quit working in 95. He would have been 50 years old. He was just, he said he didn't feel like it. He just, no get up and go, Yeah. you know, to do anything. So. And then... So tell me about the process of, of getting diagnosed with black lung and then applying for benefits that very first time. Did you know that he had black lung at that point? No. We, the, we went to the local, just a little black lung office at Pipeville where people sign up at. So he went and did that. And they sent him to several doctors for the test or whatever. I wonder if you can tell me about, about the day that he died. I can. I can. <laughs> I can tell you the whole weekend almost. So on Monday, my son had come in. He had just got out of the military. He came home, and my husband's father, which lives right near us, had been sick. So he told my son a couple weeks before that, the boy had went to Florida, tried to get a job, and my husband called him. He said, you need to come home. You need to help me with your papa because I'm not able to do it. And so the boy come home. And Richie just didn't didn't feel good. And we had a doctor's appointment to go to the doctor on a Tuesday morning at 7 o'clock at Norton. We was going to have a stress test. On Monday, he went and got a haircut. You know, he looked like he felt pretty good. On Monday night, he took a shower. We had a little granddaughter, 17 months old. My daughter's in the kitchen making pizza. My husband got ready to come to bed. And when he got in the bed, he had... He had a little mustache. She had, like, pizza sauce on him. And I said, what is that? And he said, I had to kiss my babies goodnight. So he had the sauce on him. We go to bed at, say, 11 o'clock at night. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, which would have been on a Tuesday morning, my daughter, which was 18 at the time, she come running in my bedroom. She said, something's wrong with Daddy. So I run into the living room. We had a big sectional couch. And he's sitting there, and I said, what's wrong, honey? But he couldn't talk. He couldn't talk, so I grabbed the phone to dial 911. He sort of stood up, but he couldn't walk. And he got hold of that couch and tried to move out of my way so I could dial 911, but he went to his knees. So I hurry and sit down, and I'm screaming at my daughter, and she's trying to call people. And he just laid his head over him. He never spoke a word to me. He got up at 5 till 3, Within five minutes, he was gone, or gone to me. You know, of course, the ambulance come. It took 45 minutes to get the ambulance up here from Elkhorn, which is five miles down the road. So my daughter, and we got him in the floor, and my 18-year-old daughter started doing CPR on him. She had real long hair, and I could see that hair just flying through the air, her working on him. And we're all crying, and he just looked at me in those big brown eyes, and he he died that fast, so. And we were all around him, all four of his children. My little bitty girl, 17 month old, which we were in the process of adopting. She was in the bedroom. I think somebody might have got her. She's hollering for her poppy. But it happened so fast, so he laid in the floor until the ambulance got here, and my little girl, my 18-year-old, working on him, doing CPR, and her brother started helping her. And the, one of the sons kept calling, please hurry, get here with the ambulance. So they finally showed up. 
we took him to the Pikeville Hospital, and they pronounced him dead. You know, when we got there, but he really died about five after three in the morning. solace that he was there with all of with his family uh, me too me too i kept telling him dad we're all with you and how much how honored i was to be his wife and, and to have met him but just such an honor and all of us was right with him and i thanked him i thanked him for being such a good husband and a daddy to my children It's just been a hard 22 years almost. In January, it'll be 22 years already since he's been gone. But after he passed away, I went down and filed a widow's claim. And I might have had a little hearing or something right at that office, you know. But they kept just turning me down, you know, turning me down. So, And every year I try to do something to keep it going because I'm going to do it till I die. Forgive me. What's what's coming up for you right now? What are you feeling? Just thinking about him. How hard it is to get it. I know he had black lung, and they know he had black lung. But he died with a heart attack, and they said he'd had nothing to do with black lung. And I said, how can that be? Because if you have it, it puts an undue burden on you, on his heart. And he just didn't feel like at the end doing anything, so. Just trying to stay on top of it. Must be really exhausting. It is exhausting. It is very, very tiresome. There's a lot of times when Congress, especially the the kind of more liberal Congress of the mid-20th century, created laws and policies with the idea that they were going to be easy to deal with and that they were going to bring justice into the lives of everyday people. Over the decades, as kind of the the regulations have grown, as the systems have become more specialized, that you've had professionals get into these systems and often make them more complex than Congress ever imagined would have happened. And the federal black lung system is certainly an example of that. Um, There ended up being way more claims filed um, than Congress ever imagined when they created this law. And so um, what was thought was going to be, you know, kind of a short-term, easy process, you know, here we are, you know, basically 50 years out from when Congress created this. And if anything, the system is just becoming more and more complex and more and more slow. Our first year in this <laughs> in this trailer, <laughs> he bought me a new crock pot and a new sweeper. Uh, and I guess I'll remember that forever. I guess because we got a new house, he thought I needed a new sweeper to go with it. But And he was just so proud of himself because he had. But he was so proud of this trailer. When he come home, he would just be like black. I mean, the only thing you could see would be like the whites of his eyes or his teeth. Um, he he would just he would cough up this black gook, and then he would he'd just stay sick all the time. And they'd tell us that it was uh, 
bronchitis, bronchitis. You know, they treated him for bronchitis for like three years. Gene was in the hospital once for six weeks. And, uh, you know, I was like, you, you had to be at the hospital and, and I had a, I, we had a child to raise that had to be in school and it was, it was a very trying time. <laughs> then finally, they, uh, they done a chest x-ray on him and he had, uh, they told us to come in on Christmas Eve and, uh, that was like in 2009, and we went to the doctor's office on Christmas Eve. I thought, why in the world do they want you to come here on Christmas Eve? And uh, the doctor come in, and he said, there's no easy way to tell you this, but you got lung cancer, and we fear you might live six weeks. But he fought for five years. We didn't have nothing for like a, a year and a half and I would you know I'd mow grass for people I'd weed eat for people I'd clean their house anything I could uh you know when Zach was here could sit with his dad or if Gene was having a good you know few hours I could go do something you know make some money uh because that's you know that's what you had to do he had several major operations. He had one of his lungs removed. Six weeks after he had his lung removed, he had to have another surgery. They had to open him up, and this whole side was left open. And uh, I had to dress it every day. Uh, they called it uh, the. They called it to heal from inside out. It was open for about four years. And then his appendix ruptured, and his bowels, uh, he had a bowel blockage two or three times, and uh, his stomach went up and got into his diaphragm. It was slipped through the hole in a hole, and his stomach was just, he couldn't hardly eat anything. He couldn't breathe. He he would just gasp for air because his lung, you know, he only had the one lung then, and he couldn't breathe. He was on oxygen, and he says, are you ready? And I said, where are we going, honey? He said, well, we're going to heaven. And I told him, I said, I can't. one of us has to stay here with Zach and take care of him and Riley. I said, we both can't leave him. And he died at 1010 that night. The company, the coal company had like so many days to appeal it. Here's what they do. They wait till that last day. You know, you have, you get excited a little bit. And then they wait till that last day and they appeal it. And then starts the process over again. And that went on for like two years, I bet you, or longer. Like I said, every time you turn around, it was something. And I, was, I just thought... But I, and I tell my son and my daughter-in-law, I'm tired. I'm just tired of all this. I am just don't even care. And I, so then it'd be like, I just think I'm not doing this no more. Then I'd get a letter about something, you know, and I think, I'd tell him, I ain't just going to feel this. I'm just done.
because you know they'd ask you all these questions and and you're like you know hello i'm country i I'm, i don't know this stuff okay i know it don't mean nothing to them but i'm about to lose the only thing that me and my husband had together because i have to struggle every day to decide am i going to pay the electric bill this month and the water bill or do i pay the trailer payment this month you know it's not an option they don't know what it's like to struggle like that they don't have a clue and i'm sure they don't go to bed hungry at night if they had to sit here and see him die they would not put people through that they wouldn't they would just give them the benefits and just say you know it was deserved $48,000, it, it would pay off my house. I would get to keep my home, you know. $48,000 then probably ain't nothing. But $48,000 would save my house. You know, to them, it's just an old mobile home. To me, it's home. That, you know, I'm having to come to reality that if something don't happen really soon, it's not mine. No more. The first time I spoke to Vicki Salyers, Ken West Terminals owed her more than $80,000. Finally, a few weeks ago, she texted me to say she'd gotten at least some of that money. She'll get to keep the trailer that she and Eugene Salyers called home. Her message to other women widowed by black lung? Keep fighting. When an ambulance would go by around the mines, all the women would line on the roads to find out if it was their husband or not. But now George, he did, he loved his work. He was a minor man, and they're the one right up next to, they get all the coal dust. He slept in the recliner, and uh, now some nights he would come up and lay in the bed, but not very often because he couldn't breathe. He done okay, but you could hear him wheeze. I just didn't want him to suffer. But if, when I'd hear him wheezing, it would really upset me because I thought, here this man has worked so hard all of his life and they do not want to give him benefits for what he done. He tried to get his black lung. He kept getting turned down. Well, what it was, he would go do all the tests and then they would tell him it was not... The test would say, you're breathing too good. 70%, you're breathing too good. What tore me up was, I didn't know what I was going to do. What I was going to do without him. How I could make it without him. I knew I couldn't make it without him. God gave me the strength to make it without him. He said, if when I pass, he said, if I go first, he said, you be sure to have my lungs biopsied, and I did. And uh, I got his black lung. Anyway, I went over there, and I looked at the, the boss man, and I said, well, it's mine. And he looked at me. He said, we'll see. I would go, love to go look at him in the face and say, uh, we see, don't we? Because God spoke to me. Now, if you listen, God will speak to you. I had him to pray for me over that. And he t and the Lord spoke to me and said, 
It's yours. He told me it was mine. The judge in Middlesbrough, she ruled it in my favor. They appealed it. They have every right. Then they have a panel of three judges that they go before when they uh, re when they appeal it. They've got those three three judges. All three judges awarded it to me. It took five years to get it, but I got it. But I've always loved Christmas. I love the meaning of Christmas. What does that mean to you? That my Savior came. Was born in a manger. And he came to this earth knowing why. Knowing what his end would be. And God allowed that. His son to come. For us. That we could be saved. I think that what the benefits represent more often than not isn't um, isn't numbers in a bank account. With black lung widows, that's usually f actually fairly low on the priority list. In my experience working with, with hundreds of widows and claims, the number one thing that they want is for someone, especially you know someone from a coal company or some federal official, to recognize that they lost their loved ones sooner than they should have, and it was related to the work that they did in the coal industry. And so there's, um, and and so just the kind of that recognition that that they've had a loss, and that it has an origin in something that's beyond their family, is very important to these people. And I think that that's really it's um, it just comes from a desire for justice not in the sense again that you're that the ledger is going to in any way be made equal you know at, at the end of the litigation but just that um, that there is a suffering that needs to be recognized but then also part of it is that many times the the, the coal miner who's lost was the main breadwinner in the family that they were the main provider and so the, these women are often having a hard time now that that's not there. And so often the benefits, um, you know, the women will buy some material things with them or they'll do some improvement to their house or something. And often the thing that they buy with the money, again, it's not exactly the monetary value of that thing, but again, it's just kind of another reminder of, you know, their loved one providing for their family even after they're no longer, you know, there with them in life. Yeah, I mean, um, when I was talking with Joyce, I was really touched with a conversation that we had. It was right around Christmas time when we spoke, and that was sort of in the air. She was headed to church for something afterwards, and um, she sort of made this connection between the sacrifice that her husband had made going into these dangerous work environments every day, that he loved his work, but that he, he sacrificed. He sacrificed his health, and he died earlier than he would have, presumably, um, to provide for his family. And to her, that felt very similar to the way that Jesus had sacrificed his life on the cross. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really, really touching. Yeah. There's a sacrifice there, I think, and, and in a lot of ways, the, this benefit system 
maybe as a way to acknowledge that. Is that? Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good. I think it's a very good way to put it because, I mean, um, I think all coal miners know that they are risking and often sacrificing their bodies to do this job, and you know, if you kind of think about it as a as a uh, as an economist would, yes, they get paid more for their job for doing that, but also part of the bargain that coal miners have had for the past 50 years is that if they if they end up getting black lung that they'll receive some benefits in the later part of their life and that if they die before their wives do that that those widows will get some benefits as well so again this is it's part of the bargain and and what coal miners are sacrificing for you're listening to mountain talk on wmmt In this episode, we bring you an hour of interviews with women who lost loved ones to black lung disease. Up next, we hear from Deborah Boggs, whose husband Ronnie died in 2016. Will you say and spell your name and tell me how old you are? Um, It's Deborah, D-E-B-O-R-A-H, Boggs, B-O-G-G-S, and I'm 62. Okay. And what was your husband's name? Ronnie Kiltz, K-E-L-C-E, Boggs. Ronnie Kelts Boggs. Yes. Okay. And when did he pass away? Uh, February the 18th, 2016. Okay. It's pretty recent, huh? Yes. So, if it's all right with you, we'll start at the beginning. Okay. How did you two meet? (laughs) Um, I had an aunt that introduced us, and um, we just grew up together. Uh, I was 17, actually, and he was almost 22. And uh, we've been together. We were together ever since. We were married, um, I think, 41 years. Wow. What was he like? He was a man of faith, um, but he, he was funny, compassionate, caring, loved his family. I could never find anyone more devoted or that loved me any more than he did. And Marcy once told me that... Um, Every woman deserved to be loved the way Ronnie loved me. And he loved his children. He loved his grandchildren. Um, he was their world. He, he played as much as he could. He played with them, um, laughed with them, did things with them, ball practice, um, whatever he could. And the same with his children. He, um he was a deacon for many years in his church, and just a good man, a simple man. Yeah, um, Emily, do you wanna do you wanna talk as well or no? No, I'll, I'll let mom if you need okay. me to. I'm, I'm happy to, but I'll let her tell her story. He was a good dad, though. Oh, he was an awesome dad. He was the world's best dad, and we we miss him. We miss him so much. Mm-hmm. Um. And he was a minor the whole time. Yes. Um, he did work some during layoffs, um, just doing, you know, odd jobs or whatever he could. Uh, my parents at that time lived in northern Virginia. And uh, one summer we uh, went up there and, and stayed with him for the summer. And he did construction work while they were laid off. Because the the coal boom was during the 70s. 
and early 80s. And then in the mid-80s, things kind of slowed down. And um, then there were several layoffs. And he, he worked, you know, several during the summer while the kids were out of school. We would go up there, some, you know, during that time. And but then we come back, and, and he did. He worked in, um, he found whatever at that time, you know, he could find. He worked in some little truck, they called them truck mines, the little smaller mines. And he has worked for as little as $8 an hour underground just just to provide. He must have worked a lot and, of hours. Yes. To make that work. And then yeah. um, before that, he, he often, when, when they were working so good, uh, he doubled back a lot. You know, worked double shifts. Uh, he was a roof holder primarily. He he did other things, but that was his primary occupation was the roof holder, which supported the top working. He he was just very uh, devoted to his family, and all he ever knew was hard work, and that's what he did. You know, and and he did it to to support us and 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 make a living. You know, we were just busy trying to raise our family and. Uh, take care of our children and and just you know life. So and how many so, how many kids did you did you? Do we have four. Four kids. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. So Emily's the oldest. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and then, then we have uh, twins that are middle, um, and then our son is the youngest. Um, there's four years uh, altogether, almost five years between uh, from the young, oldest to the youngest. So we had them very quickly, and. Uh, and we just kind of all grew up together, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of fun. <laughs> a lot of fun, yeah. And we just, um, like Emily wrote um, his, um, help me out here, eulogy. the eulogy, yes. And um, like she said, in it together we could do anything. Mm-hmm. you know. And, and there was many hard times because, um, like I said, we suffered a lot during the layoffs and, and the coal decline. Um, during the 80s um, and then late 80s early 90s uh, work picked back up you know but he, he always worked and did that but it was just and but we just um, you know we, we lived a simple life but boy it was a good life mm-hmm. you know <laughs> and, and Debbie you <laughs> were each other. you were a homemaker you stayed home yes yes and, and I too I did just Whatever you know, I picked up while the kids were at school. I picked up extra work, you know, house cleaning, and I cared for elderly and whatever I needed to do. And then um, there was one point that I I worked. Uh, my aunt had a was a is a beautician, and I worked for her for a long time in her shop. Um, I did an apprenticeship and that kind of thing. And but I just um, you know did whatever I could do there, and um, we just we together we made it. <laughs> We made it work, and people that had uh, were were fortunate enough to work for the bigger companies like Clinchfield and the ones that were more stable. You know, they they didn't struggle as much as as we did, you know. But um, for others like us, you know, that didn't. Uh, it and it was kind of like that with you know like it is with other jobs like who you know, you know, get you on, get you hired, and. Um, and he went through, a, I don't know, um, but he went through a sort of a period of, um, he worked for a company, the first company he worked for, he worked for a very long time for them. And um, they uh, eventually went bankrupt. And uh, he had a very difficult time getting 
um, a lot of the money he had worked out. And so uh, he went to those men and asked, you know, for his um, pay. And he even went to their attorney and asked that, you know, he get paid. And, um, or he, he would have to go to the union. At that time, they were working in a union. And uh, so he had to file a grievance to get his money. And it was only money that he had worked out. Um, but but they wouldn't, you know, other through the grievance, he got it. You know, he, he got paid. But um, from that point, um, they made it a little bit difficult for him to be rehired because he had filed a grievance against that company. Did you think back then that he would end up getting sick? No, I never never gave it a thought. But my grandfather, um, both of my grandfathers, uh, paternal and maternal, were coal miners. When when they started back in early 1900s, I guess, um, you know, they were hauling it out with uh, horses and donkeys and, you know, they pick, they were picking it out with a pickaxe. He began having episodes with um, just his breathing, and he had to have, um, he began with, I believe, with a nebulizer and um, inhalers. And he just, uh, you know, the coughing and the shortness of breath. And then he was, uh, the doctor had had, uh, diagnosed him as having COPD. It's always difficult for them because their their breathing is so compromised at that point. Once they start having the symptoms, but um, they uh, also had had diagnosed it with asthma. But my understanding was that that's what they used to call uh, with black lung. They called it uh, coal miner's asthma, and because he had never had asthma in his life, he had never had you know those issues. And but they um, they just put him through such rigorous testing, and it just uh, I mean he would come out of there and he would be so worn out. And I remember I think it was maybe two thousand and four, somewhere along that timeline, we went to the Beckley, West Virginia. They sent him there, um, and it was he was there for two days, and we did he went he was there one complete day until dark uh, in the clinic. And then the next, uh, and then we went from there onto the hospital to get to, in Beckley to have X-rays and things done. And then I remember we were even there the next day. They did even, you know, even more. He had to go back and do more. And of course, you know, when the report went in, he was, uh, you know, denied. But what they have to go through, it just wears them down. Um, you know, they're just they're worn out when they complete the examination. And then, and then a little bit further, a few years down the road, uh, he was at Pikeville, and they did one. And I mean, he he almost wiped out with when when he had to do the breathing test because they push them and push them, and they just they don't have the air to to do this. They're just he uh, was often uh, awake through the night. Uh, we had uh, at that time we had. Um, some of our grandchildren that were living with us. And um, he would worry about waking them up because he had to do breathing treatments. And it was it was a round-the-clock thing. Um, and that's, what, that's one of the things that's so frustrating about the lawyers 
and the insurance and coal companies that fight this because, you know, we lived with him and we saw how he deteriorated we, and we saw him, you know, have to stop things to do a breathing treatment or have to have his inhaler when he was out. He had to, uh, once he was put on oxygen, you know, to carry his tank everywhere he went. Um, do you think and, Do you think he was frustrated to, to be slowed down like that? What do you think was going on? I, I think, well, he would never, he, he accepted it. Um, you know, he, he just pushed, he just pushed, pushed on and pushed on. And he, he pushed himself to do the things that he did because he wanted to live. Can we talk about the whole rigmarole of trying to get benefits? And We started in, I believe it was 2004. Um, he went every year for his Labor Department physical and was denied. And I have, I have a letter here that I, I had a hearing on um, March, uh, was it 2017? And... I still haven't haven't had a decision on it on on the benefits, but my letter sort of explained. Uh, may I read that to you? Because I read this um, at, my, at my hearing, um, and this is what I uh, I asked the judge if I could make a statement, and he allowed me to. And um, this is what I said basically. Um, I did um, on that day. I probably had made some comments, um, I, you know, but as far as my letter, I'll stick with it for now. And um, I just said, thank you for taking the time to hear our case on my husband Ronnie's behalf. I'm saddened that I have to stand before you today instead of him. This horrid disease called black lung hardened his lungs, filling them with conglomerate masses, taking his health and leaving behind a former shell of my husband. For over 20 years, he ate coal dust while pinning top or crawling on his belly in low coal. He was a good worker, a hard worker, who didn't take sick days. In fact, most everyone that ever worked with him says he was the best. He gave the mines, his employers, every ounce of his physical body. We never had much, but he worked hard for what we did have. He worked through conditions we find unimaginable to provide for our family to put a roof over our heads and clothes on our backs. We are simple people. We never lived above our means, and we aren't here today asking for anything more than what he worked so very hard for. Ronnie began his fight for black lung benefits in 2004, and in 2008, his father began having strokes and dementia and stolen his mind. Ronnie never left his side until his passing in October of 2010. Shortly thereafter, Ronnie began actively pursuing his case again. It was at this point we were told Stone Mountain had not continued his case because his file had been lost. They would resubmit his claim, but everything would start all over again. Through no fault of his own, six years of fighting was now a moot point. Until his death, he was put through needless test after test, taking its toll on his weakened, frail body. As he struggled to breathe, they would take away his oxygen, expose him to needless radiation, take blood gases, and and an attempted lung biopsy had to be stopped because his lungs couldn't handle the stress. 
He died with only a few teeth in his mouth because his lungs wouldn't allow him to be put to sleep for the much-needed oral surgery. He struggled for every breath, and every step he took we thanked God for. For 14 years, the mining company has fought us at every pass, paying out 14 years' worth of legal fees, paying for doctors to say he didn't have the disease, doctors that were found guilty of falsifying results when they could have paid a man who gave them his all instead. My husband's dream was to take his family to Disney. He died without that dream being realized. He would sit around with the grandbabies year after year and say, when Papa gets his money, we're going to go. And year after year, it never happened. Our oldest granddaughter will graduate college in May, the same granddaughter that was born while Ronnie was in Dorchester Mine. He gave out cigars to everyone that night because he was so proud. He had begun carrying them in his bucket, waiting for that fateful call. My husband will never see her graduate college. He'll never have the opportunity to take them to Disney. He would have had the opportunity if this hadn't needlessly dragged out on all these years. I could agree. I could argue and show you result after result and test after test. The final test says it all. His autopsy report was, quote, cut and dry. It was so blatantly obvious that they didn't issue a preliminary finding and final summary. They were able to sum it all up in just a few short paragraphs. My husband's lungs were filled with the very thing that fed our family all those years, put a roof over our head and shoes on our feet. The thing that kept our livelihood had taken his away. It is my sincere prayer that you not only award him from the time his claim was refiled, but from the time he originally filed in 2004. The mistake was through no fault of his own, and he should not further be further punished for circumstances he could not control. Please award our family the restitution he deserved and never had the chance to enjoy. And then I just, yeah, I just said thank you again for your time and consideration. And then the update was since the hearing over a year later, we still have no resolution. The oldest granddaughter was married on Saturday. Ronnie wasn't there, and his presence noticeably missed. So that was my letter to the judge. You know, there's so many widows that... Well, because that's what I wanted to talk about. It just, to me, it seems so lonely to, to you know, to be in, in this relationship and watching your husband get sicker and sicker. And I just, I wanted to ask you if you had people there for you, if, if there were other women that you were sharing this with. Well, really, um, just my family. I, I you know... I. We watched other people go through it, but, you know, we were just so uh, tight-knit that, you know, when he had appointments, we we went together. We did everything together, but as far as, um, other than just our family, um, you know, he got to the point to where he um, 
had to sleep on the sofa because he just he his uh, we kept his nebulizer beside of him. He propped his uh, head up with pillows, and and because we we had a, a two story home, and um, it became too difficult for him to climb stairs. And he, um, but I and so I slept on a smaller sofa, and or oftentimes I slept. I had a, a chair that I slept in beside of him. Um, I I would often when he would because he wheezed even in his sleep. Um, if I couldn't hear him, I would check on it. I you know I would literally stand over him. And sometimes I would touch him or speak to him because it scared me because I knew he, um, I couldn't hear him. <laughs> Those kinds of things. But as far as having, um, you know, I just, I like to think that I have a lot of faith. I probably don't have as much as I need to have. <laughs> um, my go-to was prayer. I just, um, you know, I just prayed a lot, and I still do, but, um, you know, my relationship with Christ was uh, my strength. I just kept asking God to help me through the storm, and that, that I'll praise you in this storm. You have so much strength. I don't feel like I do. But the hopes They, they just deserve so much more than what they get. And it, I, don't, I don't know. I, like, I would just be. I would be so angry. I, I would. I mean, I. I do get angry sometimes. I get. Like I said, my. Uh, I guess my defense or my weapon for me is prayer and I just try to pray for these people that fight these men you know, so so pray for the lawyers for the coal mine for, yes because I don't you know I have no other I don't have money to you know it has um crossed my mind Marcy had even we had discussed it and mentioned it Emily and I um, had even has to be something done and I do get angry because um, there was so much that he wanted to do and and they'll spend you know like I said they'll, they'll spend unreasonable amounts of money um, to fight these poor miners they when when they could the just pay, pay when they could just pay the miners what yeah, they owe exactly. just just to have a victory yeah and that that I get angry about and I get angry about the power that they have you know and that but that's you know part of the world we live in as well but I just that, those kinds of things I get angry about because the it needs to change you know and it's and it's like we. Um, we don't have a voice. Yeah. You know. But as far as, you know, like fighting or, you know, I, 
I guess that's what I mean. My weapon is, is prayer. I have no other means to, you know, other than just like right now, the opportunity that you're giving me to voice my opinion. And I'm really, really grateful that you're sharing it with me. Thank you. Um, But there's a reason, um, there's a reason that I'm still here. And if, um, and if I can help in any small way to bring a voice for him, for Ronnie, that's what I want to do. Is there anything that you would want to say to other women who are in your position, who are feeling maybe a little lonely and a little lost after losing someone like this? Is there anything you would want to say to, to them? Well, like I said, for me, um, my faith has carried me through. And, um, you know, I would just hope that the same for them. And, you know, I would be available uh, if anybody needed anyone at any time or any hour. Because sometimes, the, in, you know, the middle of the night... <laughs> Um, the morning hours, you wake up, and um, you it, it, there's just so much on your mind, especially when it's all fresh. And then there, even now, there's times that I, I still go back to that day, that morning, and you just relive it over and over. And, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think each, um, everybody is an individual, and however... You know, whatever helps you cope best, um, and you just can't wallow. You know, and and that's one thing my physician had had told me. She, you know, it's okay. You're going to cry, and you're going to have days that that that's what you do, but you just can't stay there. You have to move on. Bye.
That's it for this episode of Mountain Talk, featuring interviews with women who lost spouses to the black lung epidemic. If you'd like to hear this or previous episodes again, visit our website at wmmt.org or download Mountain Talk wherever you get your podcasts. Music on this episode features Carla Grover with a tune called Could You Love Me One More Time from the album Hush My Restless Soul. That album was produced by Apple Shop's own June Apple Recordings. I've been your host, Sydney Bowles, and from all of us here at WMMT, thank you for listening to Real People Radio.